And so we're going to start once again in verse 12, read to verse 27. So let's read again the life-giving word of our living God. As we look at Jesus' trial and Peter's denial. Starting verse 12, so the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Simon Peter was following Jesus and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. And the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. Verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. And I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him. If I've spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Verse 25, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again. And immediately a rooster crowed. First Baptist Church of Great Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his ever-enduring word. Lord, we thank you for uh, this reminder of our desperate need for you. Um, This reminder of what you've done and what only you could do on our behalf in your trial. And Lord, what we so often do with our lives and our attitudes in Peter's denial. Lord, help us see your restoring grace. Help us uh, see your sacrifice clearly as we examine your word. And may we be more like Jesus because of it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, uh, while it might not be apparent in, at first in this passage, we are actually introduced to two trials here. There are two trials present in our text. The obvious trial, of course, is the one we see concerning Jesus Christ. Uh, but there's another trial which John interweaves with the trial of Jesus, and that's, of course, the trial of Peter. His trial isn't what we would call a formal trial, but it's a trial nevertheless, We've got much to learn from both of these trials, as we'll see. And so we're going to begin this morning by looking at Jesus' trial. There's five little points in each one of these two sections that you've got the outline uh, in your bulletin. But we're going to start this looking, looking at the trial, start this morning by looking at the trial of Jesus. It's interesting to note that in this account, we were told about the fire, how it was cold outside, and uh, and how it was at night. And these are all interesting details. We might wonder why John would add it to this account. Well, he gives these so we can understand the urgency that was in the heart of these wicked men to condemn our Savior. Friends, make no mistake about it. This was a night of urgency and injustice. 
This entire trial was something they wanted to get through very, very quickly, and it was, in fact, a sham. See, if they were going to get this done, it had to be done before the Sabbath, or else they would have to wait until the feast was over. But they couldn't wait. <laughs> so John's letting us know of the injustice of this whole situation. See, trials weren't something that were often done late at night in that day. But for the sake of expediency and not causing an uproar among the people, they proceeded in the night. Now, we are perfect, not perfectly certain what the proper protocol was at, at this exact time in history, but it's very possible and actually very likely that it was wrong for them to even question Jesus that night. According to what we know about Jewish protocol, like our system, a man was presumed innocent until proven guilty. So before any questions could be asked of the one accused, witnesses would have to come forward first. In accordance with the scriptures, everything depended on the testimony of two or more witnesses. There were no witnesses there that night to bring an accusation against Jesus. Nor were there witnesses permitted to speak on his behalf. This is why, by the way, when Jesus was questioned by Annas, he responded saying, Question those who have what I, who've, who've heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. Jesus is appealing to the law. Uh, the justice of the system. And, and because he appealed to the law and the justice of the system, he was slapped. And then even after he was slapped, he continued to pursue that justice, didn't he? He goes on to say, if I've spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. Charge me for it. Br bring the accusation. Let me hear what you think I've done wrong. See, Jesus is again making it clear to them he knows what they're up to. They should be shocked, surprised even. He knows they're not even thinking about giving him a fair trial. Now, some people have challenged whether or not Jesus followed his own law that he gives on the Sermon of the Mount to turn the other cheek here. They look at this scenario and say, well, it doesn't look like Jesus is turning the other cheek. He responded to that man who'd slapped him. But church, the thing to understand by this response is that Jesus wasn't doing anything here to preserve himself. He wasn't speaking to make a case for himself. He was merely testifying to the truth. Nowhere are we told by the scriptures that we are ever to forsake standing for the truth. We're called time and again actually to bear witness of the truth, to be ready and willing to speak the truth, even what it means we're going to suffer for doing it. That's precisely what Jesus is doing here. He then continues to point people to the truth. In this particular unique circumstance, Jesus was bearing witness to the fact that this was a kangaroo court. He was the witness to them of the truth, being that they didn't have a legitimate accusation, nor did they have legitimate witnesses. This doesn't change anything as far as Jesus is concerned. He was planning to go to the cross all along, and he is going to get there. On his way to the cross, however, he takes this opportunity to bear witness of the truth before his persecutors. Watching Jesus... In this moment, being treated so terribly, being tried by this kangaroo court, being condemned by his enemies, is something that we must be reminded of here. The Lord determined that these things would come to pass. 
In fact, that's the second thing we see in this passage, that this is a trial that's all according to plan. This is a trial all according to plan. And I want to say something here. Before you even think it, we, I know there's a trial going on in today's news cycle. We're not touching on that. There's no application for that here, okay? So get it out of your minds. We're not talking about that trial. Although um, many have probably described politics as a kangaroo court. I understand that. Uh, but we're not talking about that today. I want you to see something in this text. This truth applies to all other areas of our life as well. Every area of our life is all according to to plan in one sense. Here's what I mean by that. God foreordains whatsoever comes to pass. Uh, we might look at uh, the political landscape of our day and be led to think that the Lord has failed or his plan has been thwarted. We may look to our prayer lives and think that because the Lord hasn't answered our prayers in the exact way we want them answered uh, or the way we think he should, we think he's removed himself from us or he's not powerful enough or cares about us enough to answer our prayers. Uh, when, when we read or hear about people being killed or tortured for being faithful to him, we might wonder, why, Lord, don't you stop these things? What is going on? But church, listen to me. We, we ought to be quick in those moments to correct ourselves. See, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Who are we to question what God does? Uh, Job, in, uh, like Job, instead of accusing the Lord, we ought to put our hands over our mouths. Do you remember what Brother Bill just read for us? What uh, Job, the servant of God, said? We read it earlier in verses 1 through 4 towards the end of the book. He says, Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Uh, let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Paul reminds us that the created things ought not to speak back to our maker and ask our maker, why did you do this? These questions are not ours to ask in an accusatory manner to our Lord. Consider this. If, if the Lord's predetermined plan or his predetermined purpose includes such a tragedy as offering up his only begotten son to be subjected to the cruelties and the wickedness of his creation. If his plan for his son includes betrayals, beatings, and sorrows upon sorrows, then who are we to wonder why he has chosen to include other tragedies in life to accomplish his predetermined purposes? See, it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. But the good news in the midst of all of this is that he promises that whatsoever comes to pass, he will work it for our good. Meaning, he's in absolute control. And at the end of the day, we, we certainly do not and we certainly cannot understand why our Lord always does the things that he does. But we must be confident in this. He has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. And he has done so for the ultimate good for his people and for his ultimate glory. Whatever happens in our lives, whatever happens in the lives of our loved ones, in the lives of our family members, in the lives of our neighbors, it's according to God's plan. 
It's hard to fathom these things. But I want you to think about this. If this isn't true, we're in big trouble. It means that there are particular things that are outside our God's control. And if those things are outside of God's control, how can we ever have confidence to know that Jesus is truthful when he says that no one can snatch his people out of his father's hands? I mean, we ought to take comfort in this, especially in the midst of tragedy. We ought to take comfort in knowing that God is faithful to use it for our good and his glory. That's exactly what he does in this story as well. Well, we're told that Jesus was then taken to Caiaphas. And whether he was in the presence of Annas or Caiaphas, there's a terrible irony to be seen while Jesus is in the company of these men. This is a room of what we would call high priestly irony. (laughs) High priestly irony. And I don't really have much to this point, except this is exactly what it is. In fact, we're going to see in the next two weeks even more irony that comes from this passage But this is a room of high priestly irony, and we should realize in this room, there's only one true high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the high priest, his purpose was to uh, offer sacrifices, if you recall, on behalf of God's people, right? Remember, we looked at that in Leviticus. Well, here, both Annas and Caiaphas, as high priest, were offering up Jesus to be a sacrifice, and they didn't even know it. You remember what Caiaphas said earlier? He said it's expedient that one should die for many. He was right. Uh, He spoke beyond his understanding, and now he's even acting beyond his understanding. See, little did they know or they understand that this man, Jesus Christ, whom they are plotting to put to death, was in fact the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's a terrible and tragic irony for these men, isn't it? And not only do we see this high priestly irony, but something that stands out to me in this passage is to consider the living example we have in this account of the hardness of men's hearts. Uh, This is just prevalent to me in this passage. Uh, The hardness of men's hearts. We have a living example of this. Reading this account, we cannot be anything but shocked by the manner that these men treated our Savior. Whether the Jews, whether the Romans, uh, both groups saw some spectacular things that evening. Remember, they witnessed the power of Jesus at the time of his arrest. What did he do? He he spoke a word, and what happened? They all fell backwards to the ground. Uh, They saw his power again that night when Peter cut off the servant Malchus's ear, and what did Jesus do? He picked up that ear, gross, right? And he attached it back to this man and healed him simply by touching him. So let's ask, what impact did these miraculous events have on these men? None. They continued on with his arrest. In fact, it seems they were even emboldened to go forward with these matters. J.C. Ryle speaks about the effect that miracles have on people who don't believe. And I want you to hear this. Because oftentimes we we look to miracles to spark belief in people. Remember, Luke gives us a parable about the rich man and Lazarus, and what does that parable teach us? If they don't believe the law and the prophets, 
They will not look for a sign. They will not believe in a sign. And look what J.C. Ryle has to say about this. He says, the eye would gaze on them like the eye of a beast looking at a romantic landscape without any impression being made on the heart. He who thinks that seeing a miracle would convert him into a thorough Christian has got much to learn. The reason I share this with you is to impress upon us why we must always, always, always be praying for the Holy Spirit to open the hearts of people to hear the gospel. Uh, Friends, only the Holy Spirit can change the hearts of men. Our evangelism, our apologetics, and our preaching must never be divorced from the need to pray for the work of the Holy Spirit to accompany the sharing of his glorious gospel. We go forward in vain if we are not praying for the Holy Spirit to accompany God's word. Even this morning, this morning we need to pray for the Holy Spirit not to allow this message to leave us unaffected. That nobody would leave this place unaffected by the gospel message. By the love of God that's revealed to us in his word. If you're here this morning and you've never even given thought to believe in the gospel message, let me encourage you to not let this opportunity pass you by like it's passed by so many souls before you. Call on Christ while it's still called today. Because if I've learned anything in life, it's that not one of us is promised tomorrow. Another thing we see in this portion of the word is the unique nature of Christ's role as redeemer. The unique nature of Christ's role as redeemer. Right in line with this prophecy we're given in Zechariah 13 is Jesus headed for the cross. What happened to his disciples? They were scattered. And this was intentional. This was purposeful. Jesus had to be alone because his work could only be done by him and him alone. Uh, Peter could promise as and try as he might to follow Jesus unto death. But if we see anything from this account, we know he couldn't even handle the simplest of trials. Peter buckled under the simple interrogation of a young servant girl. Uh, This is to show us that Jesus had to go to the cross alone. Nobody else is or ever was sufficient to carry on the task that was given to Christ. Only one was able to successfully endure all the trials and tribulations associated with redeeming mankind. And it was Jesus. So now that we've considered Jesus' trial, I want us to move on what is popularly looked at in many texts as Peter's denial. We've looked at Jesus' trial. We've seen and gleaned things from God's word about that. Now, let us consider Peter's denial. As it concerns Peter, there's something we know about this that's interesting. He wasn't taken. Peter wasn't forced to go and watch this trial. Peter went voluntarily. And so, it begs the question, why, why did he go? Do you wonder that? Why? What compelled Peter to go? It would appear to me that he was probably trying to make good on his promise he swore to Jesus earlier in this gospel in uh, chapter 13. We looked at that last week very briefly. Let's read that text, three verses in 36 to 38 now. It says, Simon Peter said to him, Jesus, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. And Peter said to him, 
Lord, why can't I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. So think about this. Peter, in his pride and his zeal to follow Jesus even, he was going to show Jesus just how faithful of a disciple he could be. He was going to stay true to his word and he was going to follow Jesus even if it meant laying down his own life. Or not. But before we consider how Peter failed, I want you to know something here. Uh, Peter didn't have to follow Jesus that night. Jesus didn't expect Peter to follow. In fact, Jesus, if you remember last week, even made arrangements with the officials beforehand to allow his disciples to go free that they wouldn't go with him. Peter didn't have to go, and the truth is, he shouldn't have gone. Peter should not have been there. You ever think about that? Peter should not have been there that night. Jesus had released him of that obligation. And what did Peter do? He took it upon himself to go. What happened? It got him into trouble. And as I pondered this this week, there's something we can learn from this. How many times do you and I get ourselves into trouble by doing things that aren't required of us? Uh, John Calvin said it wonderfully when he said this about the two disciples here. He said, uh, there is no reason to doubt that godly zeal was the motive that induced both of those disciples to follow Christ. But now speaking to Peter, he says, he, was, he who was so weak would have found it to be far better for him to groan and pray in some dark corner than to go into the presence of men. He now undertakes with great earnestness the performance of a duty from which Christ had released him and when he comes to the confession of faith in which he ought to have preserved even to death, his courage fails. We ought always to consider what the Lord requires from us that those who are weak may not undertake what is not necessary. You understand what he's trying to say there? You catch his, his point? He's saying, and I think the scriptures teach, if, if we're weak in a certain area, we ought not to go above and beyond the Lord requires of us in that area. Let me give you an example, let's say a person really loves the Lord. Now, we know that every true believer, if they really love the Lord, they're all called to serve the Lord with every bit of their life. But let's say that this particular person decides he is going to become a missionary to Sudan in order to serve the Lord. It's a very good desire. But let's just say that this person has a large family. And no one in his family even does well on camping trips with all the, uh, um, um, with all the accessories they have, the amenities, uh, sorry, can't say that word. Furthermore, the person doesn't have a strong ability to adapt to other cultures. Let's say they have no idea or no desire to ever speak a foreign language. Well, what should that person do? That person would actually do well to stay where he is and serve the Lord, not pursuing those things that aren't necessarily required of him, especially in those areas he has noticeable weaknesses. Friends, not everybody has to become a missionary to serve Jesus. 
For this person, it would mean going beyond what the Lord requires of him. Now listen, that's not to say that God cannot grant grace to overcome those obstacles. No doubt he is able and he has certainly done it for some. But the point there is that there are some things we try to take on in our service to the Lord which we're not required to do. In some cases, there are things we shouldn't pursue in light of our weaknesses, or especially in areas where we may not be gifted. Where we might be weak in one area, we recognize there are other areas that are more in line with our gifts where we must focus in our service to the Lord. I want to move on now to Matthew, uh, really is the one who shows a progression in Peter's denial. In fact, each time in Peter's denial in, in this story, he, he responds with greater and greater intensity. Peter's denials intensified each time. Now, we don't get this in our text in John, but it's seen in the synoptic gospels. When you compare those accounts to John, it's pretty striking. John uh, simply tells us that Peter responds with three words, I am not. When he denies Jesus, that's what he responds with. And some believe that this was done purposefully. It was done to emphasize the contrast between Peter and Jesus. Whereas John records how Jesus is always repeatedly saying, especially in his arrest, the words, I am, we have here with Peter, I am not. Striking contrast between these two. But given the fact that we're told about the progression of Peter's denial in the book of Matthew and the other synoptics, I want to make a point of application here for us. And I want you to listen to this, especially you young people. Uh, when we sin in a particular area, after the first time, it only gets easier to sin again and again. I want you to hear that. Uh, the sad truth is we tend to get bolder in that sin the more we commit it. The first time Peter denies knowing the Lord, he simply says, I do not know him. The second time he denied him, he did it by an oath. And then the third time, he invoked a curse upon himself and swore that he did not know Jesus. It's a progression of intensity with each sin and each denial. We need to be careful in the way we deal with sin in our own lives, friends. In fact, like God's servant Joseph, when we find ourselves being tempted, we ought to run away quickly. But when we have fallen, we also need to use some sanctified common sense and steer clear from those areas we've fallen in. See, once Peter blew it in his first denial, he should have simply removed himself from that situation. Now, how often do we fall further and further into sin because we choose to linger around the very area we've fallen? Now, Peter remained and he sinned. Not just once, not just twice, but three times in a short amount of time. And each time he sinned, he sinned worse than the previous time. Pastor Gordon Ketty reminds us of this. He says, lingering in the area of moral failure is an invitation to fall further when the next challenge comes as it inevitably will. Men, if you fall into the sin of lust, steer clear from any and everything that has lust even remotely attached to it. That's sanctified common sense. 
That might, not mean, uh, that might mean not being on your phone when nobody is home or around you. Being more discerning in the kind of movies you watch and what you allow your mind to go into the wrong direction towards. You see, once you've fallen, if you continue to linger around that house, you will likely fall again with much greater intensity. Beware, many brothers in Christ still have not learned the lesson even well after the third time falling again and again. It's become a continual habit in the life of too many. But all of us, men, women, children, we all need to realize that sin is serious and we are prone to be repeat offenders in particular areas. We need to realize that when we flirt with sin, it's only a matter of time before we fall again. If you are one that is prone to gossip, don't spend too much time on the phone or social media. If you're prone to drunkenness, stay away from alcohol altogether. You know the areas in your life in which you are weak. Don't hang around those areas. Do not linger. Do not flirt. Run. Run quickly away from such things. When you're tempted, look for the way of escape that God promises to provide for you. There will be an escape hatch. You need to just be willing to look for it. Let's fourthly now note something beautiful in this passage. Is it fourth or third? I've lost count. Third. Let's notice, notice the fact that our, our Lord graciously warns us in these times. Remember this? Peter, Peter was not without warning here. Peter was warned by Jesus very explicitly. Jesus told Peter plainly ahead of time what was going to take place this day. And then after Peter denied knowing Jesus that third time, as was predicted by Jesus, the rooster crowed and Peter heard it. Matthew tells us in Matthew 26, 75, it says, And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Let me ask you this question. Has, has anyone ever warned you that you were in danger of falling into some sin and you just said, nah, I can handle it. Then you continued on. Have you ever overextended yourself in some way, gone to some place you shouldn't have gone, entered into a relationship you should not have? The Christian faith is full of individuals and even entire denominations who have, like Peter said, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Peter forgot those words from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 12 that says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. We see the grace of God and in his initial warning to Peter. But God also did something gracious for Peter in that instance. God was gracious in causing that rooster to crow. Uh, that was God's grace to Peter. Because it was then, in that reminder, when Peter realized the depth of the sin that he had sunk. We're told he wept bitterly right after the rooster crowed. Guys, even an I told you so from the Lord is a gracious thing for us to hear. If we respond to it in the right way. 
Even after we've fallen, if we would recognize that the Lord God told us what would happen if we continued on in that sin, this can be God's grace in our lives. It can keep us from falling deeper and deeper into sin. Folks, many of us, for all of us, in fact, the rooster probably crows day by day. In those moments when you're reminded, when God graciously reminds you of your sin, we ought to pray for the grace of our Lord to be sensitive to his sirens. So he would awaken us to the sounds that cause us to raise up from our sinful stupors and reach into that rich fellowship that we always find in Christ Jesus. Well, as we contemplate Peter, I want us to fourthly not miss the fact that Peter's unfaithfulness brought sorrow to our Lord. We often don't think of this, but Peter's unfaithfulness did bring sorrow to our Lord. In Luke's account of this story, he tells us that right after Peter denied Jesus the third time, the eyes of Jesus met the eyes of Peter. Can you imagine what manner of sorrow that must have brought unto our Lord? To not only know beforehand what Peter was going to do, but to have seen and heard him deny him. Guys, we bring sorrow to our Lord when we're unfaithful. I want us to remember something here. Christ our Savior is also a man. Indeed, he is the God-man. He is truly God, but he's also truly man. And as a man, he cried. As a man, he wept. As a man, he was sorrowful. As a man, he was hurt. The author of Hebrews puts it like this in Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. And knowing the sorrow our sin causes to our Savior, it ought to strike us or propel us to be more careful in how we live our lives. When we love somebody, we do what we can to try and please them. Not to cause harm to them or sorrow to them. Friends, if, if we love Jesus, we should strive to do the same in our relationship with him. When we consider the depth of our sinfulness, it's no wonder that Jesus is called the man of sorrows. Because what is sin? Sin is basically a form of betrayal to our Lord. And I don't know if you've ever been betrayed, but betrayal hurts. In fact, it is such a major issue that betrayal is given a place of prominence in redemptive history. The late great theologian R.C. Sproul put it like this. He says, in his commentary in this passage, he says, I find it fascinating that when the Apostle Paul gives the words of the institution for the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he does not speak about the night in which our Lord broke bread with his disciples. He does not speak about the night in which our Lord was arrested. He does not speak about the night in which our Lord was put on trial for his life. Instead, he references the same night in which he was betrayed. The hideous betrayal of Jesus by those closest to him was a major event in redemptive history. And I agree with that. We ought to strive not to have our sin of unfaithfulness bring sorrow to Christ. Let's move on. I want us to note one last thing here that's going to tie this all together. All four Gospels, by the way, include the account of Peter's failure. Do you know that? 
It's very rare that we find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John a, a reference to all, uh, in all four of those gospels, a reference to the same story. But there, there are many things that aren't recorded in all four gospels, but Peter's failure is. Why is that? Because I think it shows us this. This story shows us that in Jesus, we have God's provision, and in Peter, we see our predicament. In Jesus, we have God's provision, and in Peter, we see our predicament. Be encouraged, church family. Even the most intimate disciples of our Lord blow it in major, major ways. That ought to be encouraging because if the apostles blew it in all of these hideous ways, then we ought not to despair even when we fall greatly in our relationship with him. There is comfort to be had in the fact that God has included these failures in his word. I I know it hurts to look at these things and associate with the sinfulness of Peter. But these things serve as an example to us. We are to learn from them. And one of the major reasons I believe this failure is recorded in all four Gospels is to show us the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because with Peter's failure, we also know of his restoration. We know how the Lord used him mightily in the advancement of his kingdom. Peter's whole life, just like yours and just like mine, if we belong to Jesus, are living testimonies of the Gospel of our Savior. Though we blow it in some major, major ways, God is gracious time and time again. He does not change in his love. He does not change in his grace. He does not change in his mercy towards you. Jesus doesn't hold any grudges. He forgives us of our sins. He graciously restores us back into fellowship with him. In fact, in Luke 22, 31 through 32, we looked at this not too long ago, says speaking to Peter, Jesus speaking to the apostle Peter, look what he says. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail and you, when once you've turned again, strengthened, strengthen your brothers. See, I want you to remember something. Jesus wasn't just betrayed by Judas. He was betrayed by Peter. However, the the betrayal of Peter was quite different from the betrayal of Judas. Because Peter was restored. Why was he restored? Because Jesus prays for him. Because he was truly one of Christ's disciples. We see in the Bible that Judas, he felt some sort of sense of remorse for his betrayal, but he never repented. And as such, he remained dead in his sins. But by God's grace, Peter was brought back. Peter was restored and was used in wonderful ways in the service of Christ Jesus. Church, the good news is that Jesus not only prayed for Peter, But if you're tied to Christ, united to Christ by faith, he prays for us too. He is our high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. So no matter how bad you think that you've blown it in your life, you have not blown it beyond the grace of God. He saves to the absolute uttermost. And even if we should fall like Peter did in denying our Savior, we know and trust that there's hope for us. 
Because we're told in 2 Timothy 2, 13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. And so Peter was given the grace to be strengthened in his faith. So the Lord does with us time and time again. Church, if you're here this morning and you're, you're, you're a Peter, you're You're a guy who often finds himself with his foot in his mouth and you feel like you've blown it in major, major ways. Boy, how we ought to celebrate the grace of Christ and his continual restoration uh, that he gives to us. See this as an opportunity of grace. Maybe you're here and the rooster is crowing in your mind because you know you've blown it in major ways. We sing it. His grace is enough. Paul writes it, his grace is sufficient for you. And one of the evidences we know that we belong to Jesus, one of the evidence that Peter knew he belonged to Jesus is that God continually restores him time and time again. What beauty is found in Christ, our gracious redeemer. I pray that we would all celebrate together the joy that we have to have in knowing That his grace is sufficient for you, even when we blow it. Even if your blowing it is made public history in four separate accounts of your particular blowing it for all the rest of history. If it makes it into God's word, we can still celebrate because we know Christ restores his people. Amen. Let's stand together. Praise be his name again. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Father... Lord, I know you are working in and amongst us here this morning. Lord, I thank you that many times that I've blown it just today or this week, I can stand and know that your grace is sufficient. Your grace is enough that you continually restore your people. Lord, in in our minds, we, we must do what Peter did in this instance, and we must repent Let us not be like Judas who uh, just occasionally felt remorse and sorrow for our sin, but did not run to Christ, but away from Christ. Ran to his own devices of taking his own life to deal with his remorse. Let us be like Peter, that though we, we sin and though we bring sorrow to our Savior, we are ever reminded of our Savior's grace and his restoration of his people. Lord, little did Peter know and that in that moment of his own sin, that what Jesus was doing was paying for it. While Peter denied Christ, Christ was going to be denied by the Father so that he could pay for the sin of Peter's denial. Lord, and as we think of our own sin in this life and our own struggles in this life, may we never uh, divorce them from what happened on the cross. So we wouldn't just live in shame. We wouldn't just weep bitterly, but that, that bitter weeping that would be turned into fruit, would be turned to the advancement of the kingdom of Christ so that the same ones that deny Christ at times would be the exact same ones that you use to boldly proclaim the gospel in Acts 2 and see 3,000 souls come to Christ. Lord, that's the kind of restoration you are after, and that's the kind of restoration you have continually done for your people day in and day out. Lord, we're so thankful our standing with you does not depend on what we've 
we've done, but it depends on what you've done for us. So Lord, as God's people, let us live in freedom. Let us desire evermore to please you and bring honor to you and glory to you. But if Lord, I, I feel like if there's some, some Peters in here this morning, then there's some Judases as well. Lord, help us discern whether we've had true, genuine repentance that you are restoring. Or Father, if we just feel some sort of remorse, but we're going to handle it our own way. Lord, if there are those here who think they can handle their own sin, would you remind them that they cannot Would they meet the eyes of Jesus like Peter this morning and come to know that you've died on the cross for their sins that they might be saved. They might live for you for all eternity. We're trusting you to work this, Father. We know you will as you work all things according to your plan for our good and your glory. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.